0: Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast. Our guest today is Dr. Mohammed Batar. He is a rheumatologist and assistant professor of medicine at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis. His main clinical and research interests are axial spondyloarthritis and psoriatic arthritis. He is a member of the Education Committee of SPARTAN, the Spondyloarthritis Research and Treatment Network, and is a member of ACES, which is the Assessment of Spondyloarthritis International Society, and GRAPA, the Group for Research and Assessment of Psoriatic psoriatic Arthritis and Psoriasis. Dr. Batar, welcome and thank you. I'm so excited to have you today to talk about our topic of gender differences in axial spondyloarthritis.
1: Thank you so much, Jill, for the introduction and thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be with you today.
0: Great. So uh, this is a really important topic, gender differences in the disease. Uh, A common scenario I have heard many times and experienced is uh, seeing a treat, uh, seeing a doctor or maybe a specialist and getting the response of women don't get AS. (laughs) Uh, And that may come from a variety of different places. So uh, I think we've made some advancements, which we'll talk about today, and I'm excited to dig into those. But can you start off with what are some of the main differences in disease characteristics between men and women when it comes to spa?
1: That's an excellent question, and I think we can talk a lot about the subject because I'm very happy to be talking about this topic, because as you mentioned, this is uh, a misconception that has been going on for a long, long, long time, for years and years, that if providers used to think that this condition only happened in males. That's why this condition was missed in a lot of females in the past. And what what we are trying to do now in the spondylarthritis community is to raise awareness that this condition happens in both males and females equally. So we will talk a little bit about epidemiology. Epidemiology, which is a study of frequency in the population of the study of uh, frequency of conditions in the population. So in the past, they used to think that this condition which is called ankylosing spondylitis is much more common in males so in in very very early studies i think the ratio was 10 males to one female wow and uh, yeah imagine and then as the uh, as medicine advanced this ratio went down to three to one and that was we're still talking about ankylosing spondylitis which is by definition it's a radiographic disease, which means that we need to have some evidence of X-ray findings of inflammation of the sacroiliac joints. But as also, as we advance in medicine, we know that it can take up to 10 years for this inflammation to appear on an X-ray. So we have, thankfully, we have some like MRI or advanced imaging, so we can detect this disease earlier. And then the, it, we came to the... Um, era of non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, which is a spectrum of the condition, but where patients do not have an evidence of X-ray inflammation, uh, evidence of sacroiliac joint inflammation on an X-ray. By introducing this term non-radiographic disease, this ratio became one-to-one between males and females. So imagine from 10 to one, now to to one-to-one, so initially in the past, they used to think this disease or condition does not happen in females, but now we are trying to tell everyone that this condition happens equally in males and females, because we do not want this to be missed.
0: That is fascinating, and that has really happened in the last decade, decade and a half, right?
1: So the from three to one, to one to one, it's within the past two decades, but... Uh, the 10 to 1 to 1 to 1, uh, excuse me, 10 to 1 to 3 to 1, it was longer before. Um, anyways, the condition was not very well appreciated and like in the early 1900s or so on. So right. um, if all of this happened within the past, if you want, within
0: the past 40 to 50 years. That's an amazing translation of research to practical use, isn't it? Yeah. Is there a... So when we go into it, so are there, so the main differences you'd say between men and women in diagnosis tends to be around inflammation of the sacroiliac joint?
1: So actually there are a lot of differences that we are trying to appreciate. And there are a lot of newer studies right now that, that are targeting this issue in specific about sex and gender differences between males and females in excess Again, it's very important for us to understand those differences. Why are there differences? So we can appreciate how to go forward and doing studies or trials, whether it's treatment or diagnostic trials and so on. So we can try to uh, talk about different points about the differences in, in sex or its gender differences between males and females and exome spondyloarthritis. Clinical presentation is very important. So how patients present with symptoms initially to see a provider, there can be differences between males and females in how they present. For example, males usually present with lower back pain, inflammatory back pain. This is the most common type of picture. While studies, recent studies have shown that females tend to have much more peripheral involvement. For example, they can start with having knee pain ankle pain, shoulder pain, elbow pain, those we call them peripheral joints before developing the inflammatory back pain. So by having peripheral joint symptoms or also something called enthesitis, enthesitis is like tendon inflammation or tendonitis. It's much more common in females compared to males. So if we are seeing a female patient who's coming more with peripheral involvement and not complaining of back symptoms, usually providers tend to think about other etiologies and try to think away from arthritis. And this is part of how this might be missed. Also, we can have to talk about uh, the, other comor- the other manifestations of the condition that we see, such as eye inflammation, inflammation in the bowels, inflammation in the skin, psoriasis, and so on psoriasis and inflammatory bowel disease tend to be more common in females compared to males. Uh, The iritis or eye inflammation is around the same between males and females. So uh, the clinical presentation can be a little bit different, and that's why we need to educate providers or the medical community that female patients with excess spondyloarthritis, they can present differently than males in the initial or early stages. Okay.
0: is there, this is a bit of a curveball maybe, but is there a prevailing misdiagnosis for females prior to getting a diagnosis of spondyloarthritis? Exactly. This is a very, very
1: important point. Yes. So actually, the, uh, you've heard about a condition called fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia, it's a condition that uh, it can cause a lot of symptoms, a lot of pain symptoms, but it is not it does not have the pathway of axial spondyloarthritis. Axial spondyloarthritis is more auto-inflammatory pathway that involves, for example, the Th17 pathway or interleukin 17, Th17 cells, and so on. While fibromyalgia, it's a different. It has a different pathogenesis that is non-inflammatory, or at least the current uh, literature or current understanding of the disease. It's not inflammatory at this point. So because fibromyalgia can cause widespread, widespread pain and symptoms, females tend to be, or women tend to be misdiagnosed with fibromyalgia early on um, rather than spondyl arthritis. This because of, because of different factors. Uh, be, one of the factors is, for example, widespread pain. There's an entity called widespread pain, which means uh, there is pain at a lot of different parts of the body. This is more common in females compared to males. Uh, in axial arthritis patients, for example, 25 percent of female patients with axial arthritis they tend to have widespread pain, while it's less common in males. So if the provider, whether it was a primary provider or whether a specialist like a rheumatologist, seeing patients for the first time and this patient has reported widespread pain, there is misdiagnosis that's happening towards fibromyalgia without uh, without trying to see if there's anything else going on like axial spondyloarthritis. We have to acknowledge that fibromyalgia can happen hand in hand with axial spondyloarthritis or with any rheumatologic disease but we do not want to immediately label a patient as fibromyalgia without trying to rule out other etiologies. So the first thing we do in the clinic is we say, if we if we get a consult, rule out, for example, fibromyalgia, rule out excess arthritis. Fibromyalgia is a diagnosis of exclusion, which means at this point in time, we do not have a blood marker or anything in specific to tell you to confirm it on, any of the tests. That's why we need to have a differential diagnosis, we need to rule out other conditions such as exospondal arthritis and closing spond- or different conditions before we label this as primary fibromyalgia.
0: Interesting. You uh, just went through several years of my life uh, as I was on my own journey and I know it's highly frustrating for a lot of people who end up with an eventual axial spondyloarthritis diagnosis. And it's great information, right? Even as the patient to advocate for themselves as they're going through the journey uh, to understand those differences. Uh, One of the things we talk about a lot is, is the age difference between men and women at onset. Is there a defined or understood difference in age when symptoms begin? So the data that we have at
1: this point, of course, we have data from different uh, from different cohorts, uh, whether in the US or whether in Europe or different parts of the world, the data that we have that female patients tend to be diagnosed at an older age compared to males. This, of course, there's many theories behind that, but one of the more common things that we think about is because of the delay in diagnosis. Yes. Because if this condition is not captured early or if providers do not think about this condition early on, this is most likely why the condition is being diagnosed at a later age in females compared to males. And actually, there are, um, I have to tell you that the delay in diagnosis is a very sad thing that we are we are trying actively in the spondylarthritis community to try to close this gap by educating providers and medical community about the condition. So the average delay in diagnosis is around 6.7 years in the general population. But in females it's even more in female it's around 8.8 years or nine years compared to 6.5 years in, in males so you have an extra two to three years of delay in diagnosis in females most likely because of the lack of awareness that this condition can happen in females as well as in males wow Is and that, i know i know that, you mentioned i know you mentioned that you were frustrated and i shared with you this frustration and uh, of course, this delay in diagnosis bring with it a lot of disease burden on patients. The condition can be debilitating. It can cause a lot of symptoms. It can cause uh, what we call a loss of work productivity because of symptoms and so on. It can cause even a lot of a psychological burden, such as, depression, anxiety, and so on. So definitely, this frustration is very well understood, and I share it with you, and that's why we need to do anything we can as a medical community to try to close this gap and to prevent this delay from happening.
0: I wholeheartedly agree. And it's probably the number one reason I became involved with the community. I saw it over and over, people having the same story. It was like we could have all written the same book. Uh, So not that men don't have a tough time getting diagnosed too. So I wanna honor that. Uh, One question I guess is in follow-up, does disease progression begin sooner in women or men, or is there clear data on that?
1: I don't think we have a clear data on this point. Again, this um this subject of sex differences or gender differences is relatively new that is being studied within the past three to five years i would say so we do not have a lot of data on when does this progression start but we have data on radiographic progression of the disease by saying radiographic progression it means uh, we mean immediately x-ray progression Uh, mri it's uh, i want you to think about mri as an image that can show us early evidence of inflammation. Of course, it can show us bone changes and and erosions and bone damages and so on. But the MRI, we like to use it to assess for inflammation and evidence of active inflammation. The thing that will show us if this condition is progressing radiographically is an X-ray. For example, if we get an X-ray on baseline, day one of whenever we see the patient first time, and then we get another X-ray in two or 40 years after we see the patient, if patients are not getting the treatment, which I hope everyone will be getting treatment as early as possible, but if patients go go unnoticed, the disease go unnoticed, underdiagnosed, and then there is a repeat X-ray after a few years, you might see changes in the bone, something called syndesmophytes, which is an extra bone formation, or even some patients in severe cases, they can, le- can lead to something called bamboo spine, where the spine can get fused. So those are progression of bone that you can see on an X-ray. Okay. This, this progression on the radiographic progression, we have some data on it. It's mainly, it's more in males compared to females. So the progression, radiographic progression can be seen more in males. That's why the prevalence in males, well, it was thought to be more in males than ankylosing spondylitis because it's a radiographic entity. But why does this happen? Of course, we need we need more data on it. One of the theories is because of a genetic marker, I'm sure you've heard of, It's called HLA-B27. Yes. uh, We'll talk about it more because I always like to talk about HLA-B27. But HLA-B27 tend to be more common in males compared to females. And there are some studies that have shown that HLA-B27 can lead more to or can be associated with more radiographic progression or radiographic disease. So, And this is again important to talk about because females can have less prevalence of HLA-B27, so we do not rely on the presence of HLA-B27 to make a diagnosis. So if there is a patient, whether male or female, have negative HLA-B27, that does not rule out the condition. So this is again a very important thing that we talk about because we do not want to miss a condition because the patient does not have an 27 And this is more in females because they
0: have less prevalence
1: of this genetic marker.
0: Yeah, and I've heard a little bit uh, in terms of tracking disease progression, more so in females using ultrasound to watch enthesitis change over time and how that contributes so there are, and I think these are newer advancements in the last couple of decades, which is wonderful. Uh, so
1: regarding just one point regarding the ultrasound, I, I agree with what you mentioned. There is more studies being done on ultrasound right now, but it's being done more in psoriatic arthritis. Okay. Usually. And then it will hopefully move toward and closing with axial spondyloarthritis. There's a lot of overlap between psoriatic arthritis and axial arthritis because they belong to the family of arthritis. But I agree with you that this is something that is being looked at uh, very recently on ultrasound and, and the condition.
0: Interesting. And uh, so we, we have come a long way from identifying AS as a man's disease. Uh, Is there anything that stands out in the past 10 years that's made the changes possible and assisted more women in getting diagnosed? Or is it the human factor in the diagnosis that the rheumatologist uses?
1: So that's a very important question. Um, I think the main, the main thing is, of course, we have great researchers working on the, in, in this field, and all these questions that we try to bring up, you know, those are very important questions. But the thing is, we of course, we, we always heard that this disease is the disease of males, even, you know, in medical exams, when we are taking medical exams, you know, they usually give us a scenario, like a clinical scenario the, for example, always it was a 30 year old male. Maybe it was 30, 30, 35, 25. But it was always in the medical exams. It's a male who has this condition. And now what we are trying to do is if we are in a conference or so, we're changing the clinical scenario to include this is a female who has this condition because we want to tell people that this condition happened in females. But the main thing is that because in the clinic, in the clinical setting, we are seeing a lot of females who have this condition and a big percentage or in a certain number like percentage of these females have radiographic progression and have radiographic evidence of the disease so they can have a bamboo spine. So by seeing these cases in the clinic, you cannot deny that. There is there are this condition happen in females. So I think when the clinicians started seeing this case in the clinic, probably those questions came up that why, why, uh, why we always thought that it's disease of male and so on. And that's how the research started. But also there is a lot with the advance advancement of research. We have acknowledged there are a lot of differences ha- between males and females in axial arthritis. If we have some time, I'm happy to talk about those differences.
0: Absolutely. We would love to talk about those differences.
1: Perfect. So, for example, also the newer studies have shown genetic differences. I talked a little bit about HLAB27, that is less less common in females compared to male males. There is another gene called ANKH. This gene can lead to more ankylosis or more more radiographic disease, for example, progression of the disease. Studies have shown that the loci of this gene are different between males and females. Same for different genes that are newly being discovered that have shown that, for example, if this gene is present, then the patient might not respond to treatment as, as we would like them to respond. So there are genetic differences that we need to acknowledge between males and females. The other thing is immunological differences. For example, sex hormones. Sex hormones are different between males and females, not only in exospondyloarthritis, but in medicine in general. And some, for example, the presence of estrogen some studies have shown that the presence of estrogen can lead more to production of inflammatory, cell, inflammatory markers, such as tumor necrosis factor and so on. Uh, also, inter, uh, there are studies have shown that Th17-responsive, those are inflammatory cells, and interleukin-17 cells can be more prevalent in men compared to women. Why do I say all these factors? Because when we understand that there are immunological differences, between men and women, this will make us think that maybe the treatment responses might not be the same with the same medication. And for example, if I see a female who or a woman who did not respond to this medication, maybe I shouldn't say that this, uh, this patient does not have the disease, but maybe the immunologic print of the genetics of this, of this patient is different from the other one. That's why they are not responding. So there are differences, genetics and the immunologic immune system between men and women.
0: Also, yeah. Is there uh, I can let you come back to that, but is there also differences that occur within uh, women of childbearing age? or women with, in pregnancy, I know a number of people who had very different symptoms during their pregnancy or a lot of flaring, or for some it was better during different periods of the pregnancy. So is there a general understanding of what goes on during pregnancy for women?
1: Yes. So again, this, of course, all your questions are very, very important questions. This uh, pregnancy, exospondyloarthritis in pregnancy, this topic is not very well understood. We have newer data. We have some ongoing studies uh, in the spondylarthritis community about what happens in pregnancy for exospondyloarthritis patients. We know in rheumatoid arthritis, for example, it tends to get better. The condition can, tends to get better in pregnancy. We know in psoriatic arthritis it's similar; it tends to follow a pattern of rheumatoid arthritis. But in axial arthritis, we do not have a clear pattern. As you mentioned, there are different different people tell you different things. Sure. But what we think, what again, there are, there is no pattern. But what we think is that the condition might be might remain active within the first one or two trimesters and then it tends to get a little bit better toward the third trimester. Why does it happen? Again, it could be related to hormonal changes in pregnancy, but again, we do not have a, like a clear-cut answer at this point because we need more data. What happens after delivery, it varies between patient and another. We do not have a similar one pattern for everyone. One thing I want you to keep in mind is that pregnancy, there is a lot of... A weight load on the pelvis in pregnancy. And this can cause symptoms on its own, even if this is not coming from an inflammatory source. For example, if you have a female patient, uh, excuse me, pregnant patient, uh, pregnant person, not another thing, because uh, if they do not have the condition, if they do not have excess arthritis, they might develop some low back pain toward the end of pregnancy because of the weight they are carrying, you know, because of the pregnancy. So this stress on the pelvis can cause some symptoms as well. This can be a confounding factor because we can't really tell if the symptom is coming truly from inflammation or from the weight of pregnancy. One thing I want you also to know, this is very interesting finding that has been shared with us recently in the literature about if if we see a patient after delivery, complaining of back pain, and if we get an MRI of the pelvis after, within the first one or two months after delivery, we might see a lot of what we call bone marrow edema or inflammatory changes in the pelvis or the sacroiliac joint immediately after delivery. And actually, there's a very interesting study that was done. Um, I forgot the number of uh, patients that were enrolled, but they started with a number of patients. Immediately after delivery, they did an MRI of the pelvis, and then six months after, and then one year after the delivery, they followed them and then they repeated the MRI six months and one year after. Immediately after delivery, a big percentage, a large percentage of those patients had inflammatory changes on the MRI that looked like axial spondylitis or ankylosing spondylitis. They repeated this six months after this percentage went down. And by one year after uh, delivery, this percentage went down to 12%, which is, which is much less than, much lower than the percentage they started with. So pregnancy and the weight of pregnancy can lead to stress on the pelvis, which can lead to those changes in the SI joints, sacroiliac joints. That's why we need to know also how to interpret those changes in MRI after delivery because, again, I know there's a lot of underdiagnosis in um, excess but also we do not want a misdiagnosis or overdiagnosis of the disease because of a misinterpretation of the MRI. So that's why uh, excess arthritis in pregnancy need to be studied more because we need more data on it.
0: That's really interesting. And again, with both my pregnancies, I was in constant physical therapy. They couldn't figure it out. They said, go get an MRI after you have the baby. And by the time I got there, there, and there was nothing, right? So it's that's my own experience. I don't know about anybody else, but I know that it's uh, it can be very challenging. And at that time, I had never even heard of ankylosing spondylitis. <laughs> so, uh, We talked a little bit about genetic predispositions to AXPOD men and women. Related to that, what are the main differences in treatment approaches for men versus women? Is there a, a protocol based on gender or is it still very high level based on the overall picture?
1: Uh, At this point in time, we do not have a protocol based on gender or sex. It's the same approach for both men and women. Um, Why? Because the clinical trials that were done of the different medications in this condition, they were not stratified based on sex or what. Let me rephrase it. they were not powered. Usually we need when we do a clinical trial or a study, we need to have um, a sample size or a power for the study to detect a difference between, between uh, two things we're studying. For example, if we want to appreciate a difference between men and women, we need to have a specific power of this study in order to be able to tell us if there's a true difference between men and women or not. Uh, sadly, unfortunately, the trials that were done in the past were not powered to detect this difference. So right now we cannot really stratify treatment based on sex or gender. In the future, we hope to see more uh, power analyses to try to differentiate between what treatment works for what, what sex or what gender. But at this point in time, we do not. At this point in time, we have a clear algorithm. For example, we follow in the United States, we follow the ACR, American College of Rheumatology, SPARTAN, and the SAA uh, guidelines that were last published in 2019. Uh, this guideline, we have an algorithm. First, uh, first line treatment is anti-inflammatory NSAIDs. Of course, in the absence of any contraindication to that. And then the second line will be a TNF inhibitor, tumor necrosis factor inhibitor. And then after that, it will be a 17 inhibitor and the newer uh, class of medication that was added, which is Janus kinase inhibitors. So really we the, how we choose a treatment at this point, it depends on individualized uh, choices. So it's the patient that we see, what comorbidities they have, what other medical conditions, what contraindications they have, what other manifestations of the condition they have. And based on that, we talk to the patients about what options we have, and then we proceed with that option. But we do not have an algorithm based on sex or gender.
0: Okay. And in, in the spirit of inclusion and access to healthcare, I would hope that clinical trials in the future will include women, uh, a bigger population of women, and maybe some other uh, ethnicities. Uh, so we get as we get further in our in research, yeah, that's fantastic. Um, does does ethnicity or nationality that we're aware of have a correlation with the number of men or women diagnosed? Uh,
1: again, this is an excellent question, but I don't think I have an answer to it, mainly because, um, as you know, which you mentioned something very important. We hope that we see more women in the trials in the future. We need more representation of women and different races or ethnicities. Um, there is a study that was published from a registry from the U.S. about uh, sex differences in excess arthritis And the number of females who were not white or not Caucasians were very minimal, very, very small number. If I'm not mistaken, it was less than 10. And uh, in statistical studies, epidemiologic studies, you cannot make conclusion if you do not have a good number or a good sample size. So uh, that's why I don't think we can answer this question because we do not have data on it. I think we need more data.
0: I would agree with you there. My head is spinning with research ideas.
1: That's amazing. We always want research ideas. Please let us know. You know, um, honestly, you cannot imagine how much you can help us by telling us those ideas. Maybe we can work on them in the future.
0: Yeah, because I would think uh, if we're not including, right, we've already got the the lack of inclusion of females and then when we're looking at white females, that's one one area. And then when we're looking at the underrepresented groups within females, uh, there are a whole host of other problems that may be preventing diagnosis, just lack of access to healthcare, social determinants of health, all these different things. So I'll, you guys can exactly. cut that <laughs> if you need to, uh, but this is, it's, I'm passionate, but,
1: uh, but I agree with you. This, I think, needs a, uh, this needs a different session uh, about about uh, racial and ethnic disparities, because this is something that I like to talk about a lot as well, because we need to raise awareness about the subject. And I think it needs a full session about the disparities in arthritis that we are more than happy to talk about in a different session. Definitely.
0: Excellent. Uh... So I think the the one question, too, that we covered a little bit, but I think it's important is what are the major differences in comorbidities in men and women? Or are we still question? Do we still have a question mark there? I know, know when it comes to cardiovascular or different risks.
1: So we have two things. We have manifestations of the disease and we have comorbidities. Manifestations, as I mentioned, is with uh, other inflammatory um, features that happen with a disease, such as eye inflammation, uh, skin inflammation, inflammatory bowel disease, and so on. Inflammatory bowel disease and psoriasis tend to be more common in female patients who have excess arthritis. Uveitis or iritis, eye inflammation, it's the same around the same prevalence between male and females. When it comes to comorbidities, it's increased in both. I think from the registry that we've seen in the U.S., it showed that both men and women have increased the risk of osteoporosis, uh, osteopenia, or low bone density, and so on. Uh, both men and postmenopausal women have high. As, as if I remember correctly, it's postmenopausal women have higher risk of having cardiovascular events, cardiovascular heart problems. Um, those are the main comorbidities, I think, that were addressed in this, in this registry. But is it more in men compared to women? I think we need, uh, or more, more common in women compared to men. We need more studies on that. But at this point, we know that it's, those comorbidities are increased in both Genders, both men and women, and that's why we need to catch the condition early in both sexes, so we can prevent those comorbidities to happen as much as possible.
0: Absolutely, it's it's the uh, it's almost like design principles. Designing early, designing out the variables early gets reduces your rate of failure, right? <laughs> uh so this has been fascinating we're gonna wrap up but one question i have for you and you can uh, it's a two-part question you can pick to answer one or the other is uh number one what are your top three tips for any patient with the disease and number two what do you find is most hopeful about progress for this community coming in the future?
1: I would love to answer both questions. (laughs) The first one is what tips I have. The main tip that I have, and I say this to every patient with exospondal arthritis that I see is I want my patients or exospondal arthritis patients to think that they can achieve anything they want in life. And I do not want them to think that this condition can limit them in achieving their dreams or goals in life. This condition can cause symptoms. And this condition can cause, as I mentioned, pain. It can cause different types of conditions. That's why the patients will need to work closely with their physician to try to control those symptoms. But these symptoms should not in any possible way um, hinder the advancement of the patients in their career or in their life. Uh, every time I talked to my patients, I was like, you can be very productive in this society. You can be anything you, you want. You can be a CEO of a company. You can be anything, the top position of anything you want. Because you, my patients or the expat patients are very smart, very hard workers. And we can learn how to cope with this condition, how to not say, why did we get this condition? You know, we, I don't think we, we should say this. Why Why us, why not anyone else? No, if we get it, we need to embrace it. We need to work with our, with our physician to control the symptoms because the second question that you asked, because the advancements that happen in this condition are a lot, especially over the past 20 years, over the past two decades, we advance from having no medications, basically nothing except an, other than NSAIDs, to having at least three or four classes of medications like TNF inhibitors, interleukin-17 inhibitors, kinase inhibitors, and we have a lot of other targets that are being currently studied in the literature. So there have been a lot of advancement in this field. These medications have shown that, of course, we can't say in everyone, but they, in a lot, a big percentage of portion of patients have have caused a lot of relief. It helped a lot with symptoms. It helped with progression, with lowering the progression of the condition and with preventing comorbidities from happening or preventing uh, complications from happening. So we have a lot of advancements that have caused a lot of relief in a lot of patients. That's why we want to work very closely with AXPA patients, and I want them to know that we will try anything in our power to help them, but I want them to believe in it because we, we need to work both together on achieving the
0: goal. And there is tons of great research, and it's, it's translating into outcomes, right, and impacts. Exactly.
1: There awesome. are a lot of research uh, happening on targets of treatment, know which is very promising for the future it's always good to have more targets hopefully we would like to see um, personalized targeted medicine Um, this is not something that's happening in rheumatology or at least i'm not i'm not going to say let me rephrase it this is not the case in rheumatology right now but the hopefully the studies ongoing studies or the future studies will lead us to this precision medicine in rheumatology where we can say that we have this patient, then maybe we can choose this type of specific treatment for them because we will know ahead of time what will work for them or what not. Hopefully we'll reach this stage in the future. Also, there's a lot of work happening on uh, the causes of this disease, such as pathogenesis. Again, it's very important for us to understand the causes of the condition so we can understand how to target this condition.
0: Excellent. Dr. Vitar, Thank you so much for this time. And this has been a great conversation. And thank you for your commitment to the community. It's much appreciated.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure. And uh, I'm, as I mentioned before, this is my passion. And rheumatology is axial spondyloarthritis. So I will continue to work with the community on different aspects to try to uh, raise awareness about the condition and to try to combat this condition uh, because I want, uh, hopefully, every AXPA patient to be diagnosed as early as possible and for them to get the help they need as early as possible. Thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to future collaborations.
0: SpondyCast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members and our show's corporate sponsor, AbbVie. Since our founding in 1983, the Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit educating, empowering, and advocating for people living with spondylarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.